Welcome back to Conversations with the Leaky Cauldron, episode 22, Harry Potter, and the Deathly Hallows chapters one through seven on the seventh book, or we'll certainly be talking about seven Harry Potters. And from the two additional people that we have on this podcast who offer an additional seemingly seven perspectives or infinite, Ms. Sarah Miller and Mr. Willis Shantz, welcome, our, and thank you for joining me, and thank you for all of us joining together uh, on this seventh part of our uh, Harry Potter voyage. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. And so I guess just back to work. And so we, um, Sarah, you really carried the discussion in the pre-show. You had um, several, I thought, very key moments from the beginning of this book that you wanted to talk about. Wes, you also wanted to talk about the epigraph some, just because I think that comes first. Maybe we could talk about that first. And then yeah, um, several of the sure. points you wanted to talk about, Sarah, you were bringing up the, the leaving or the departing with the Dursleys. Um, you brought up the fall of Hedwig and Mad-Eye Moody. Um, uh, you also brought up um, the seven potters and the different perspectives people had on them. And I think you brought up something else too. You were bringing up a lot of very interesting things. And so uh, probably uh, we have enough to talk about. And so let's just dive right in. So Wes, I'm looking now at the paperback version of the American Seventh book. And after several pages and the title page and then the Library of Congress page, um, I see on the right a dedication, which looks sort of like a, like a puff of smoke or a downward spiral in two dimensions. Um, I guess my first question is, Sarah, what do you see for the dedication? And then uh, Wes, what do you see in the dedication. I mean, I too see the, the downward spiral about uh, splitting uh, into seven ways. Um, but I, I thought uh, I also have the epigram or the ep epigraph, excuse me, which comes after the chapter titles. Um, there's like a, a piece from Aeschylus's Libation Bearers and a piece from William Penn, a William Penn essay that I'm not familiar with. Um, is that what you meant, Wes? Sorry, yeah, I, I also am not familiar with the context of those really at all, <laughs> but I do find them pretty interesting and I think the uh, the way the dedication is set up on the page makes it kind of look like what's going on with the, the way that the poetry of Aeschylus is set out on the page. I don't know if that's something in the particular translation of Aeschylus she was looking at or um, if she did that to make it look more like her dedication. To me, the, the shape that it has is more like a snake than a spiral, but I, I guess I see what mm -hmm. you're saying, like the helix kind of thing going on. Um, I guess. Or a lightning bolt. Hey, yeah. It's got a lot of squiggles for a lightning bolt, but I guess so, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know who any of those people are. I imagine that there's something really complicated about becoming a, a world-famous author, you know, um, <laughs> and that would sort of tend to make people who, you know, are close to you that much more important, right, that they actually know who you are. Um, that So, you know, this is, of course, the culmination of her long project and, you know, something that's probably way more successful than she ever expected. Um, and I, I mean, 
the the book is enormous. The table of contents itself is like ten pages long, and then but then you get these epigraphs, and I don't think that any of the other books had them. Um, so they stood out for that reason alone. But but also, they, I mean, they're about death. I guess um, we haven't really got to that theme too much yet, um, as like an actual thing the characters reflect on. But um, we have seen some deaths already in the first few chapters, which is usually what's reserved for the books, right? Um, but we get them right here, right off the bat. Um, it's it's uh, it's also a lot like which of the books is it that it starts at the Riddle House? Maybe the fourth or fifth book. Um, in this one, we start at uh, the Malfoy House, right? And we see a pretty horrific scene going on there. So, so yeah, just a lot of death and darkness and and um, you know the heaviness of like putting a big epigraph in front of your book is like. You, you've arrived, I feel like, as an author at that point. You know, it's interesting, too, because it's sort of a figure of the end at the beginning, which is also at the end of the series. It's the beginning of the final book of the series. And so I, I also see, besides a lightning bolt and a spiral, and um, what was it you described it as, Wes? A snake. Yes, I see it as a river, too. And what's interesting about that is that if you just, you can see the, the valleys and crags, as it were, the valleys and peaks. And so now in this final book, we will see the entirety of the river and how it's sort of a repeating pattern as well. And so I think that's sort of interesting. Um, one question I had about this, besides uh, wanting to get into death and getting into death immediately as this book welcomes us to do is, what do you think it means that, um, that part of the, the uh, dedication here is if you have stuck and to you, if you have stuck with Harry until the very end. Is that to us? And uh, why is it to Harry and not to her? Um, is there some idea of us all sharing a world and the world itself being more important than we as individuals are? And then, because I've been listening to this book, where are these epigraphs? I've been listening to the Jim Dale um, version of this audiobook, and so I haven't seen these epigraphs, nor have they been uh, spoken. And so I, I don't want to be too aloof on that point. That's interesting choice on their part to leave those out. Um, it it just it's at the very end of the the table of contents, um, right before the book actually starts. Uh, I can send you a picture of it if you want. I I've got it here. I just hadn't opened the book yet because I've been listening to it. Um, are do we want to read these? Yeah. So the, we have the Aeschylus, the Libation Bearers, and then the William Penn More Fruits of Solitude. Were we in, interested in reading these and seeing how? the relationship between the text and these poems develops over the course of this final installment? I'm sure. Um, do you want to read Aeschylus? I would be honored. Go for it. Oh, the torment bred in the race, the grinding scream of death, and the stroke that hits the vein, the hemorrhage none can staunch the grief, the curse no man can bear. But there is a cure in the house, and not outside it, no, not from others, but from them, their bloody strife. We sing to you, dark gods beneath the earth. Now hear you blissful powers underground. Answer the call, send help. Bless the children. Give them triumph now. Aeschylus, the libation bearers. Wow. Um, <laughs> it strikes me that the, the second person has shifted from you, the reader, to you, the 
blissful powers underground. <laughs> um, that's that's kind of cool. I, I hadn't noticed that before. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem, it seems more like a curse than a prayer. It seems, mm -hmm. you know, it, it recalls to me very much Juno's invocation in book seven of the Aeneid of Electo, the fury from hell. If I will not be supported by the powers of heaven, I shall call forth the powers of hell. It is as if now we are supposed to enter sort of a dark, hellish underworld, um, that we are now going to see the full darkness of this wizarding world, which is interesting just in conjunction with the movies and how dark the Warner Brothers logo is as you go through there. If you go to the Harry Potter fan page, you can see lots of memes with that. Um, but also just that, you know, one thing we've been talking about just to get to the death aspect, which is of course itself a final moment in life, just as this is a final installment in a series, is now it seems like we're dealing with the biggest possible problems. The problem of evil slash the problem of finitude slash the problem of death and betrayal. It's like we're finally getting into the real dark meat or what the alchemists would call the feces in which you find the stone of little worth, which is actually the philosopher's stone. And so it's like we're actually getting to the, uh, the deepest possible meaning, not only of life, but also in this text. And that's symbolized even here in the beginning. Sarah, what do you see in this poem? I mean, I see a lot of, um, I, I, I guess I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that part of the Aeneid, so I, 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 I was unable to see that analogy as you, as you just illustrated it. Um, I am just personally struck by the first stanza more than the pre, than the second or third. Um, the, the language, um, torment and grinding street scream and hemorrhage. I think the word staunch is a really powerful word, at least in English. Mm. Um, uh, I, I have to admit that I've read this book more often, this seventh book. So I'm, I'm, I have a sense as to why, like how this is a, a relevant passage. Um, the, the, just a little bit more of a sense, I, I suppose. Um, so I don't want to give that away or anything, but, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that this seems kind of like a pretty good summary of the various responses that we've seen, certainly Harry, um, have towards the death of, of loved ones. The hemorrhage none can staunch, um, reminds me of like the blood that, um, is hard to stop, um, coming out of, uh, I think it's, George's ear and um, right you know um, the grinding scream of death is what Harry dreamt of before he even knew he was um, he even even knew he was a wizard um, and I, I think it's it's interesting just this idea that uh, the curse that no man can bear um, you, you know uh, for Harry right now that is that is the prophecy that he is haunted by. Um, and the idea that there's a cure somewhere from within, I don't know what to make of the, the second person um, addressing the, the dark gods, but this seems to be kind of a, an allusion to the, a notion that she's been weaving into, into the story for a while. Um, that's, that was my reaction to it. I like that you resonated um, with the, sorry, go on, Wes. 
No, I was just saying we should we should cross over then to the next one. Let yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say that I like that you resonate more with the first stanza than the last two. I, I sort of did too, and I noticed sort of a connection to Cain there too. And uh interesting. I wonder if that curse is something like original sin or you know, having to make choices between good and evil or something like that. In any case, Wes, did you want to take this one? Okay. So death is but the cross or sorry, death is but crossing the world as friends do the seas. They live in one another still for they must needs be present that love and live in that which is omnipresent in this divine glass they see face to face and their converse is free as well as pure this is the comfort of friends that though they may be said to die yet their friendship and society are in the best sense ever present because immortal you know i see a lot yeah sorry gosh I'm jumping in so fast. I'm, I'm so interested in this one. This one seems very much in contrast to the one before, whereas the one before has sort of a dark tone and focuses on, I would say, the sort of brutal aspects of the limited essence of time and your limited time that is the hemorrhage, the, you know, unhemorrhaging wound I think you have, like the sands in an hourglass ever falling through. That's the blood coming from your body. Um, but here there's an, uh, there's an essence of immortality like a river that kind of, uh, ebbs and flows or rolls in a in a scene in a pattern over and over again that here there's something that maybe it's almost Christian and that death seems defeated that some things go beyond death that some things do seem to be eternal um, and even the final word is itself immortal where the first word is death it's as if death is itself overcome in the very order of operation within this text uh, throughout time and even ontologically, like death is moved away from towards immortality. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I don't know where she got this. Like, I've never heard of this book, More Fruits of Solitude. I have heard of Penn, if he's the same one who, you know, is na Pennsylvania is named after, or maybe it's yeah. the father of the Penn that Pennsylvania is named after. But anyway, um, what leaps out to me is the divine glass. So there's a, um, there's a shard of that mirror that um, uh, Sirius Black yeah. gave to Harry Potter that, that figures pretty um, prominently in the first, or rather the second chapter, the first we see Harry in. Um, he catches a glimpse of something in the, in the mirror and, I, and I, he thinks that it might be Dumbledore's blue eyes looking at him. Um, I, I thought that was kind of cool how that also connected back to the mirror of Erised from the first book. Um, that's a really neat, you know, to go to the chiasmus thing, right? The, the mirroring that happens within the books themselves. And even Harry remembers that as like, when he's reading the obituary, he's, he, he remembers that that was one time where he didn't think Dumbledore told him the truth, right? Um, uh, right. He remembers the, the time where he said, oh, I see myself getting some socks. But just as, on that note of the divine glass, that is a, that's an allusion to the first letter to the Corinthians. Um, I think it's the same chapter where um, Paul writes, you know, if I speak with the tongues of, uh, of angels, but I do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clinging symbol. Um, you know, if I ha take all I have and give to the poor and give my body 
over to suffering, but I do not have love. I have nothing. And then that's the famous like wedding passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It is not proud, blah, blah, blah. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then there's, I just looked this up. Um, like first Corinthians 13 verse eight says never fails where there are prophecies, they will cease where there are tongues. They will be stilled where there is knowledge. It will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Um, and those three things remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. It's hard not to, it's hard not to guess. First of all, given who William Penn was, that was absolutely an intentional allusion to mm -hmm. the idea of seeing face to face. Um, and then to think of all of the times where Dumbledore says that love is the power that he has. And it's a power that, you know, can imply weakness. Um, but the times where we've talked about um, childhood and adulthood, about crossing over certain barriers or boundaries or lines into a, a different world, um, plus the times where we've talked about prophecy, it's kind of hard not to think that this is like a deliberate allusion to an allusion well, to this passage, right? <laughs> I mean, that's right. hard for me at least. No, I agree. And I, I, I like how that passage is translated a little more when it's translated as through a, I see as through a glass darkly, which it, I, I don't know if that's the King James version translation, but that's just, um, but just, I completely agree that what this book about is putting away our partial scene or perspective on the series and having the full perspective. And I think uh, part of the dedication is supposed to show us that and that it is the fullness of the series realized. You see the full form that the particular parts of it have been trying to embody. Uh, it's like a connect the dots. And so now, now we are going to see through the glass with a much fuller perspective. And that just, it ties also to the idea, the idea of looking through a glass and seeing clearly to Dante, the highest heaven that he has in the Empyrean is actually seen as a reflection off the invisible crystalline heaven. Uh, it's like, it's like seeing, it's like seeing heaven in the same way that you see Dumbledore here. So it is as if, you know, I don't know, Harry has seen a glimpse of heaven, or or it is that sort of Freudian mirror of error said he's seen what he wants to see in this moment. But I, I just, I completely agree that that passage seems appropriate, does seem clearly alluded to by Penn, and therefore by Rowling. And just something that I think is the strongest piece of evidence is that when he talks about as being as a child, seen as a child, we don't go back to school in this book. We go out into the world. Now they have to go through sort of an, a rite entree, a sort of rite of initiation. They have to become mature adults and make mature adult decisions. And it, it seems like a big part, maybe even the big part of becoming an adult is realizing that you are finite and that you will die in having to deal with that and make choices, um, you know, with this hemorrhaging wound of time. And that, uh, so yeah, I completely agree. Right on. Well, um, 
I don't know where you guys want to pick up in the actual book, but we should probably get going on that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I guess, Sarah, you had some things you wanted to be sure to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wasn't thinking necessarily of going chronologically, but I think the, as I was um, reading this, these chapters um, in chapter, I think it's chapter two. Um, I'm sorry. Um, maybe it's chapter three. I'm just scanning through my book. Um, where, yeah, chapter three, where um, Harry and, and Dudley have kind of a moment. Um, and right. uh, I think that that's important. Um, I mean, uh, he almost has a moment with Petunia as well, but he doesn't, right? And I, I, he certainly doesn't have really much of a moment with Uncle Vernon. Um, but I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's like page 36, 37, um, maybe even a little bit further. And um, he, you know, he, Dudley, offers Harry a handshake, you know, he says, like, I don't think you're crazy. <laughs> um, uh, and it's, it's almost like the, to me, what I saw is sort of like the, that there's potential for redemption, even in a character um, who is seemingly unredeemable, who's been a bully, who's been a mean kid, who's been unkind, um, you know, that there, there's a way, I think it's like page 40 or 41 or something where there's a way for, there, there's a, there's a glimmer of potential for, for goodness, for transformation, for redemption, even in someone like Dudley for whom, you know, he might very well be a rotten kid, but certainly his context has made him worse if it, if he wasn't already kind of like yucky of a kid to begin with. And I think we talked about that a little bit when we were comparing or at least drawing parallels between Harry and Voldemort youth. So like Dudley too had, has a, has a context that's worth, worth keeping in mind and that here's a kid who can overcome his context, you know, even if it's too late, even if he and Harry never see each other again, right? There's like, there's at, 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 at minimum a kind of detente and I don't know. There's, um, he can't really explain it, but, uh, but they have a moment when they leave. And, and yet even for Petunia, who maybe has even more of a reason to, um, like soften towards Harry, you know, we, you know, Lily has, she, uh, Harry has Lily's eyes and, um, I, I, I don't know. She is somehow incapable of saying more than goodbye to him. Um, she, at the end of that chapter, she has that moment where Harry thinks that um, she was on the edge of speech, but then with the jerk of her head bustled out of the room after her husband and so on, uh, or, and son. Um, and I don't know. I, I think I know for a fact that that's important for a, par a few parallels later, but um, what did you guys think? Did you anticipate that? Did you, like, what do you think it means? Um, I don't know. What do you think? I thought that the 
well, at least a couple parallels do show up pretty quickly, which is in in uh, Hermione and Ron both having to think about how they're going to kind of cover for themselves going off. Um, of course, Harry doesn't have to do it himself, but he does have to persuade the Dursleys that it's important that they leave, right, for their own safety. Um, Hermione does it, of course, through, through magic um, tricks or, you know, enchants rather her parents into thinking that they're someone else and that they have no daughter, right? It's very moving. And they go off to Australia where they'll hopefully be safe. Um, and Ron, of course, has got his ghoul that he's made to look like himself. And he's had help from Fred and George and his dad to, to try to cover for that, um, for you know them not going back to school, right? It's going to be different. Um, whereas here, yeah, Harry, he tries to persuade them. He tries to tell them. He knows they won't listen. <laughs> they have to you know, do this thing because of the magical world and they continue to pretend it isn't real, right? Or that it didn't affect them. Um, that, that kind of makes me think back to, you know, that that idea of maturity consisting in consciousness of death or awareness of mortality, right? Like in some ways the Dursleys are still children then if they are trying to be blind or um, to the this this way that their their closeness to Harry Potter makes them vulnerable, um, and yeah, Petunia. Sorry, um, Petunia seems to kind of realize it there and be on the point of saying something about it. And I thought it was cool that Dudley's the one who actually does articulate it. You know, at least to some extent, in in some way, he he makes a gesture of reproachment with Harry. Um, and Harry, to his credit, reciprocates. You know, as much as he's had a hard time with the Dursleys, he seems open to the possibility that they have some good in them. And so, how does how does that departing scene, which really strikes me as parallel with Dumbledore's sitting down with the Dursleys, um, the time before that we saw them, how does that juxtapose with the Seven Potters? That we didn't see. I was wondering what that meant exactly because you know there's that cliche that said that that's running around these days on the internet that's everybody that you know has a different idea of you and thus the idea of you is is different in everybody you know is different in everybody you know. Everybody has a differing perspective on you and I was wondering how how whether you you had some perspective on how that thought ties to each of these people therefore embodying Harry? Or is this itself sort of like a cheeky clue that Harry is himself a metaphor for the archetypal hero and anybody can embody him at some given time? Or, and, um, well, you know, what do you, what do you think of that juxtaposition? Is it even there? That's a, that's a weird way to think about it. I, I thought the the contrast they're going for is with the Horcruxes, you know, the seven pieces of Voldemort, yeah. and seven Harrys. But I mean, it's a pretty bizarre plan all around, right? To have all these people be um, impersonate Harry Potter. Uh, it does seem that you know Harry's right that this is going to put them all in in inordinate amount of danger. Uh, of course, it turns out real badly for. George and especially for Mad Eye, um, 
I don't know. Just, I, I thought this was such a weird plan for them to, it just seemed so over the top. <laughs> I don't know. And yeah, I, I guess I can see that the idea that you'd like embody the hero. Um, they all are, they are all willingly doing it. Right. Um, they're all of age. They all have chosen this burden. Uh, it's kind of sprung on Harry, right? He's not really got his say in the matter. He's rather unheroic looking as a result. Like it's kind of a strange way for him to, <laughs> to be rescued. Um, it's of course in the, the same flying motorcycle that he was carried in as a baby by Hagrid. Right. And it, I don't know, it's just a really, really odd sequence. I don't know what, quite what to make of it. I definitely thought, I mean, I, I read the seven Harry's as kind of a, like you said, Wes, kind of a a contrast to the seven things um, into which Voldemort had, Voldemort had encased the soul. And that I was struck by a couple things. Number one, um, even though they looked like Harry, they still talked like themselves. And so what that indicates to me is that appearance and appearance is is window dressing on a soul, right? Like that person looks like Harry, but it's still Fleur, right? Mm. So like, um, yeah. and that, I think that that's when, when Hermione explains why when you, de when you destroy a Horcrux, a piece of soul can't just go into another object. She says that the body is like the, the, a human being with a soul is the exact opposite of a Horcrux, right? Like that, the Horcrux needs the body. The, the, in a Horcrux, the soul needs the body, the object in which it's encased to even exist. But that um, the human being, the soul does, the soul's existence does not rely upon the body, right? Like she says something like, I could stab you with this sword and it wouldn't kill your soul. It would kill your body, right? Um, yeah. And I thought that, I thought that was like the very deliberate to illustrate like, who, what the, what the strengths are of each of these sides. The other thing that I think you brought up, Wes, that I thought was important is that it's all of like the weaker people, the younger, the, the smaller people um, who take on Harry's appearance, right? So um, it, it's not like Bill doesn't become Harry, Fleur becomes Harry. Um, Kingsley doesn't look like Harry, Hermione does, right? So maybe that's simply for the sake of the plan but um i just the fact if you add that with how how weak and how foolish he feels when he's sitting in the sidecar and then ultimately how 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 weakened he feels like you know um how weakening that whole experience is the things that that are lost the the moment where he's literally like heading towards the earth in a sidecar that's been separated from the motorcycle like how much how, that's so enervating and so I mean in in, in traditional like, heroics that's so not heroic what he is looking like and I just sort of thought it was maybe an attempt to indicate how important weak what seems like weakness is and how necessary what weakness provides you or what imperfection weakness is a shitty word for this but what it what a what what it provides you, maybe like a better word might be incompletion, 
or like a privation, an absence, a lack, or something like that. Passivity. Um, What it what it creates is like a recognition that you need other people. Like if you if you're too strong, or if you're perfectly built, or you are not broken in any way, um, or you feel like oh I got this, then there there'd be no reason to reach out to other people and ask them to help, right? But it's like it's weakness of some. not like not bad weakness but but weakness nonetheless demands that we build community or alliance or um uh teams of some kind and that like that's going to be the exact antithesis of the 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 quote-unquote community of death eaters they you know he he wants nothing more than to be so powerful that he doesn't need them and what, what really, what he doesn't need his followers. And yet he desperately needs them. And he doesn't understand that. And that I think is the, like the real, one of the real like weaknesses in Voldemort's logic is that he needs people to follow him, but he doesn't want to need them. He wants to make them obsolete. He, and you know, which is why when he needs someone else's wand, um, it, it's just so, it's so shameful for him to need something from someone else. You know, uh, that's how I read that scene with the seven potters, which is why I think it, when Dudley is the one to, um, uh, I think Dudley has to be the one of the Dursleys who recognizes that Harry isn't crazy is because Dudley's the one who's been weakened, like terrified by his encounter with the, the Dementors, clearly haunted by it. Um, you know, when he's like, oh my God, there are more. Um, (laughs) and he's also the kid, right? I think it's, there's a, there's like a latent political argument here that like adults are beyond saving. Children can be saved. Children can be molded. They can be taught. They can be, um, uh, they can be raised. They can be shaped. They can be formed. But when you're an adult, you're kind of if you're not formed right, you're kind of fucked when like, cause you don't like, you can't teach a dog old, uh, an old dog new tricks. Like adults are far less likely to recognize their own weaknesses and band together with people. Like adults just fall into their ways, you know, and like stop seeing the world from anybody else's perspective. But kids can do a lot. Right. And that, I think Dudley sort of represents that too. It couldn't be the adults. They're too, they're too uh, like set. You know, and to that point, you're helping me to understand why it is that even though we're receiving all these metaphors of coming to be and becoming mature and embodying the hero and recognizing one's own death and um, not no longer speaking as a child because we're no longer children, we see Harry sort of in reverse, like you two have been saying, that he finds himself in a passive role here in the sidecar that he was in as a baby. So there's a parallel drawn between him being a baby. He takes a passive position. He does not get to ride on a broomstick because that's too indicative of the person he generally is. And Voldemort is capable of using that against him, which we saw in the last book, right? His penchant for heroics almost Mm -hmm. got people killed. And um, now you see evil sort of adapting. But and I was, I was wondering too, I was like, man, yeah, this is utterly passive. This is so different. But I guess, A, it's because the good guys, the Order of the Phoenix, are adapting to the fact that Voldemort understands their key player so well. But there's also a, a contrast as well as the comparison. I totally accept the seven Horcrux and seven Harry 
uh, idea. I think that's that's dead on. And I would say that there's a big contrast in that Harry has so many people helping him looking just like him, right? That's what Voldemort can't stand, anybody being like him. And so much so that Harry even relies on somebody else to drive him, someone he puts his full trust in just like Dumbledore did. Again, that trust element like you were mentioning, Sarah, like we brought up, that a big difference between Voldemort and Harry is that Harry can accept community and communion and thus be vulnerable with people, whereas uh, Tom Riddle, uh, Voldemort, has always wanted to uh, dominate. But you even see that in their modes of transportation because now apparently Voldemort can fly just on his own, <laughs> on like a cloud of smoke. He yeah. doesn't need a broom or anything. And so Harry is like so, he's, he's so entirely reduced here to this totally passive role in order to just blend in. Whereas Voldemort is all the more majestically demonic. Yeah, the, the way that he just sort of appears um, is pretty terrifying. Uh, there's also this thing with the wands, right? That his wand casts a spell that he didn't know and he didn't intend to do it in any kind of way. It's it's different than other times when he sort of like instinctively reacts, you know, and, and that's kind of what people try to tell him must have happened, but he knows that something weird is going on and seems that Voldemort knows about it too, and there's something going on with trying to use someone else's wand to get around it, right? Um, Ollivander's in jail, and now Voldemort's heading to find someone called Grigorovich, not to be confused with uh, Gregorovich, the terrible um, Quidditch player. <laughs> but like, yeah, there's, there's some weird um, mechanical issues here, which I think are kind of interesting. Like, we've never really been told going on with magic and wands and you know like why certain things happen they happen very abruptly right that we'll get sort of like holes thrown out there um things that even wizards don't seem to know about much right aside from Dumbledore who seems to know pretty much everything um like the Priory and Cantatum moment you know or, or when I don't know uh Voldemort tries to possess Harry directly and he gets cast out by the pain of love, right? So there's like all these sort of interesting, yeah, I, I guess I just call them like mechanical or, or technical things going on with magic. And, and we're going to see, I guess, more about wands and how, you know, Harry's wand seems to know magic that he doesn't. Um, I don't remember quite how that works, but I'm guessing phoenixes are involved. I have, yeah, you, you know, as you speak, I'm just thinking obliquely about something, and I don't even know if it's really a question at this point, but um, it was something I talked about with you two in the pre-show, but it just, it's gripped me, and so I, I wanted to know your perspective. So just a part also of these first seven chapters is the will of Albus Dumbledore. We meet Rufus Scrimgeour again, and there's something about how Jim Dale performs him that I do like him and his gruffness, even though he happens to be on a different side from me. It's very different from, say, Umbridge, who I loathe entirely. As the <laughs> It doesn't matter what side she's on. I don't like her, right? Um, but... To what extent is Scrimgeour an alternative view of Harry's future, like a differing Bernard of Clairvaux that Dante can, can uh, move towards as his ultimate ideal, his like figure of embodying God the Father? And um, t 
to what extent is there a tension between Harry and Scrimgeour? Because Scrimgeour is sort of like the practical man, whereas Dumbledore is like the speculative. That Scrimgeour is himself a most successful representative of a path that Harry could take, or head of Aurors, head of Ministry of Magic. I mean, what a decorated life. Um, I just, something I've just been trying to understand is why there is that tension between them. I know obviously Scrimgeour wants to use Harry as a symbol of propaganda and hope, um, and Harry disagrees with the methodology of Scrimgeour, in particular implicating people who he believes to be innocent, like Stan Shunpai, he thinks that seems to be sort of totalitarian of Scrimgeour or fascist. Um, but uh, I just, is there, is there something in that thought? Is, is Scrimgeour in some way like, or is, is that also Harry? Because the other thing that tripped me up is that Harry is going to have to choose a path at some point in his life, like a, a sort of a mundane career if he survives this book. And then he might work at the Ministry of Magic. And right now he seems to be so famous that he is sort of outside of these distinctions and he doesn't have to make that sort of choice. But at some point, it's not going to be him versus the ministry. Like he's going to be a ministry employee, ideally as an Auror. And so he won't occupy anywhere near as big a, uh, a slot on the, of the public eye. And I was, I was wondering if his rejection of Scrimgeour is sort of like a rejection of being you know, sort of reduced to his role in the way that like being a child with infinite potential, you have to sort of, uh, you know, hedge your bets or, or sanction off particular futures in order to pursue an actual one. Like you can't be a doctor, engineer, and lawyer all at the same time. You have to choose one of those paths. Um, I'm sorry, I know it's kind of a weird question, but it just has been gripping me. Yeah, I, I think their their dynamic is pretty cool. I mean, given that now Dumbledore's gone, now Moody seemingly gone, um, Scrimgeour is probably one of the top, you know, contenders for most powerful good guy wizard, maybe Shacklebolt or Lupin or someone. Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting that he's so so strongly cast in the role of of the um, the rival, you know, or the 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 oppressor here. Um, I think it's pretty funny how he has like this kind of grudging admiration for Hermione when she like catches him in his his technicalities about the will, right? And she knows the exact law that he's been forced <laughs> to follow, right? At least he followed the law, which is good. And so they got their, their stuff, but of course not the sword. Um, I, yeah, I just, I find that scene really funny and, and cool. Um, I like that burns a hole in Harry's t-shirt, right? And then he feels sort of bad that he like lost his temper. Um, yeah, I think Harry totally gets the better of him there. Um, but then Harry's kind of, you know, standing up against Lupin too, right? He's like, you know, believing and trusting everyone there. He doesn't think anyone's sold him out. And that's probably foolish, but like, he can't help it. That's the honorable thing to do it. And, uh, and you know, that, there seems to be a kind of vacuum of power really here. And, and it's, it's up to Harry to kind of stand. I mean, I don't like Scrimgeour. I don't even know if I'm saying that word properly. Um, 
just I think for the same reasons that Harry doesn't. Um, I think um, I think it's really tempting in a position of power to justify small um, negotiations of principle for an end goal. Like I, I see him as far more Machiavellian than um, than Dumbledore, right? Like, and and I think that the heart of that the heart of that is like a fear of being weak, right? And I, I just, I think it's interesting that, you know, what did, when did we first see Scrimgeour? He wanted Harry to appear alongside of him so that people would think that the ministry is like strong, right? There's like this, uh, and, and that's something that like Dumbledore never really cared about, right? He didn't care about appearing strong. Like, he, um, as a side note, I just finished teaching Things Fall Apart, which is a great novel if you haven't read it. But one of the things that one, yeah, Chinua and Chebe, and one of the things that uh, we've been talking about, especially in comparing um, Okonkwo to, say, Creon from Antigone or Joe Keller from All My Sons, or uh, and how they're maybe different from Odysseus, um, is just how much uh, how much these men care about how they're perceived, and that when you when perception is the order of the day, um, you actually relinquish quite a bit of power over your own sense of success or self-worth to the people who you, whose perception you value, right? Like there's an inherent weakness in caring about reputation because it, on the one hand, you want people to think X about you, but on the other hand, you want to control what they think, right? So it's like, it's like the it's the conundrum that 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 in theology that that theologians feel like God God has got God gets over this conundrum by granting free will, right? Like it's not it's not it's not love if you're forced to do it, right? Like uh and I think for Scrimgeour what I see is someone who is who cares about politics more than policy, who cares more about how things appear than how they are. And um, so like when Harry says, when he, Harry says like, I don't like your methods. And he refers to the, the, you know, the, the scar that he still has on his hand, because I think the implication is like, Umbridge still has a job with you, right? Like you say you're interested in this, in this, but the way that you behave is not, a reflection of your values right like and, and the problem when you when you negotiate away and you negotiate away and you chip away and you you um you, you trade away your what you say you believe in for what's expedient is eventually people stop believing you um and you become like you know the mitch mcconnell's of the world who's only predictable in the sense that he will do whatever it requires for him to be powerful, right? Even if it means saying one thing today that is the exact antithesis of what he said yesterday. And I don't think those people are trustworthy, um, even if they are predictable. Uh, and and, and I, I really don't, I don't like him. Um, and that whole, you know, that the trick that he pulls with the sword of Gryffindor, you know, I just, uh, I, think, I think he's like a, a far, far, step away from Dumbledore I think what in the sense that Dumbledore represents an alternative path for Harry I don't know that 
Harry's ever going to be as smart as Dumbledore was, <laughs> but it doesn't look like it. I think, yeah, I, I just th- I think Scrimgeour represents what happens when you prefer the appearance of power or strength or I got this over what's right. You know what I mean? And like in in the world, that's a really temp. Like the more in the world you are, that's a really tempting tempting choice. And you think like, oh, I'm just going to make this one choice this one time to 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 stay in the game, to stay in the room where it happens, you know? And then over time, to quote Hamilton, if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for, right? Like, um, if, if, if over time, like, if, if, if all you're interested in is the acquisition and the retention of power, then, then I don't know. I, I feel like that is, that is part of what the modern, <laughs> the modern landscape of politics suffers from, is that it, it is not that it's Machiavelli's fault because I think he just observed something about human nature rather than taught something. But like the, the, I don't know. I, I see him as, as, as a very, a very tempting way to um, attempt to um, challenge Voldemort, but ultimately completely not successful. When you negotiate away your identity and who you are in an attempt to win, you lose. I think. Right. I see. I I totally agree that A, he's a Machiavellian. B, that he puts end goal over methodology, but that C, he doesn't realize that that is what the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is, right? Uh, Dr. Jekyll is called Mm -hmm. Dr. because he has the long career of doing good, but Mr. Hyde, because he's just embarked on his career of doing bad but over time it becomes harder and harder to go back to dr dr jekyll because this is sort of a neurological story of and theological in that the the little bad sinful things that you lay with at first like the like lucifer with sin uh eventually you do once then three times then five times you get more and more into them you spend more and more time dedicated to them you you become less and less your original dr jekyll just dipping your toe into something and more and more this uh, creature that embodies sin. And so I, I, I take your point there that Scrimgeour is not to be liked precisely because he has sort of uh, danced with the devil and thus been corrupted by it. And that if Harry is going to be a representation of sort of the logos or the carrier of truth, that he cannot give in to this sort of, um, this demonic figure. Again, another sort of just as we were talking about how um, uh, Slughorn is sort of a figure of Belial or the demon of luxury, it seems like Scrimgeour here is sort of like, uh, I can't remember whether it's Moloch or whoever the demon of like uh, propaganda and false speeches, almost like what people who have, I would say, uh, we can interpret the Aeneid think of it as, as a simple work of propaganda. Or propagandist. I think that's a small element of it. In any case, I I I, I see why you dislike Scrimgeour because it, it's like you doubt his integrity, and so I I I, I take that point. Yeah. Yeah. I also noticed that this theme seems to be starting to come about, like waves from an ocean of appearance versus reality. Like we have the ghoul in the pajamas that has to seem like Ron. We have the polyjuice potion that makes all these people seem like Harry. Scrimjaw wants to appear strong, even though he's not actually. And so there's like, like Stephen Colbert, what is it? 
Vidari Quam essay to seem rather than to be the uh, the opposite mm -hmm. of quote, which is essay Quam Vidari, um, the passive of to see, so to be seen, uh, to be rather than to be seen or perceived in a certain way. And so that's very interesting too that that theme is coming about. Um, were there some final, was there some final thought that we wanted to end with today? Oh, well, just, you know, RIP Hedwig. Um, yeah. Uh, she well, dies pretty abruptly. Oh, that, was, and that was tough. Pretty sadly. Uh, it's, it's like, uh, it's rough too, because she's like kind of mad at Harry for right. their, last, their last interactions. They, they don't really get to say goodbye or anything. Just cooped in her cage. I loved just to die. Yeah, Sarah. I loved in that chapter how it's titled like the fallen warrior and it could be about Hedwig or it could be about um Mad Eye. I mean I think it's supposed to mean Mad Eye Moody, but I do think that um you know this if Hedwig hadn't been there, Harry would be dead, right? Um, I think, I think Hedwig took a bullet, <laughs> um, right. and, you know, um, I also think, you know, just in light of what is, has been implied, um, about, um, the snake and the snake's relationship to, um, to Voldemort, right? It has it, have, have I read ahead? Or has it been implied that the snake is possibly a Horcrux? That's been implied, yes. That was a suspicion. Yeah. Now, so, so if that's the case, I, I just think that that's an interesting contrast or parallel. I don't know. If, I don't really know if it is a parallel, but um, just that 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 animal has is so crucial to Harry's, you know, entree into the um, the Wizarding World. You know, he talks about how when he didn't have any, you know, in certain, in times of trial, that Hedwig has been a, a source of comfort, also a source of access and knowledge is how you can get information and how he was able to communicate with people. Um, and I think it's interesting that, that both he and Voldemort have this animal to which they are attached, but the way they are attached is radically different. You know, one is, uh, I don't know if that makes any sense. But. Well, and even just to the distinction you made about the difference between body and soul and Horcrux and soul, there is literally that difference between Harry and, uh, and right. this ethereal, aerial uh, creature and uh, Voldemort in this uh, mundane or, or of the earth terrestrial creature. It is literally a Horcrux for Voldemort. It holds his soul, whereas Though it is very tragic that Hedwig mm -hmm. dies for Harry, it does not damage his being. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I, I also am now noticing that there are some parallels back to the first book, the first getting of Hedwig. And um, of course, seeing that snake as well, who was bred in captivity and establishing Harry's sort of link to the wizarding world in a much less uh, 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 evil or malicious seeming way than Tom Riddle, who also established that connection with snakes early. 
But that's interesting too. I, I hadn't been on the lookout for allusions back to the very beginning, but I suppose we might be noticing some of those in these chapters too, just with a very different um, tone um, and sort of dark, ominous feeling behind it. And so for next time, where should we read to? Yeah, I don't know. Like a hundred pages or, or so? We finished it at the beginning of chapter eight. Uh-huh. Um, do we want to go through... Um, I think if we go through 13, that's a little bit more than a hundred, Wes, but that yeah. would end, that would end like a, 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 a scene, I think. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, excellent. So eight through 13, starting with the wedding, very different. So instead of these tragic elements in death, perhaps we'll see some comic elements. Perhaps we'll see comedy turn to tragedy. Until then, bottoms up, y'all. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. See ya. You too.